Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, businesses, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders Council of the Legal Services Corporation. But what you have all been talking about, especially about sort of legal aid as an example, uh, Brandon, about like sort of recovery support services. So the treatment box is important, but it, it, it exists to some extent separate from health and wellness. And what we really need and where public health struggles is in the space between things. They can stand up a residential program or stand up this or implement something, but what keeps it all together? Hello and welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I'm your host, Ron Flagg, president of the Legal Services Corporation. In today's episode, we discuss how COVID-19 has impacted opioid use disorder and access to services for persons with opioid use disorder. I was just saying to my colleagues on the panel, a lot of us sort of lost track of the opioid epidemic during the COVID-19 pandemic, which has sort of taken over the headlines. But unfortunately for the millions of people affected by the opioid use disorder, they haven't had the luxury of ignoring OUD. And in fact, as we're gonna hear today, the pandemic has made opioid use disorder and access to services more difficult and worse. Our guests today are Brandon George, Vice President of Mental Health America of Indiana and Director of the Indiana Addiction Issues Coalition. In those roles, Brandon advocates for opioid use disorder prevention and recovery through public policy and education. In long-term recovery himself, Brandon is personally and professionally dedicated to fighting addiction and promoting holistic recovery. Mishka Turplin is the medical director at Friends of Research Institute and a managed services provider staff physician at the University of California, San Francisco. Mishka is board certified in obstetrics and gynecology, as well as addiction medicine. His clinical research and advocacy interests lie at the intersection of reproductive and behavioral health. Mishka is nationally recognized as an expert in the care of pregnant and parenting people with substance use disorder. Brendan Wood is an Equal Justice Works Fellow at Legal Aid of West Virginia. In that role, Brendan helps West Virginians in medication-assisted treatment programs regain control of their lives. He provides them with information about their rights under the Americans with Disabilities Act and other laws and engages in community outreach and advocacy to ensure their access to employment, housing, and economic stability. Thanks to all of you for joining us today to talk about COVID's impact on the opioid epidemic. And to sort of set the context, let's start with uh, Mishka. Mishka, can you tell us broadly, how has the COVID pandemic affected the opioid epidemic and what has the pandemic meant for people with opioid use disorder? Well, thank you. And thank you for inviting me to be part of this panel. I'm really looking forward to a conversation. And I do hope that we focus also on some of the silver linings that emerged from the pandemic. But 
to briefly answer your question, in many ways, like the pandemic has been a disaster for people who use drugs, for people with opioid use disorder. There were disruptions in, you know, the illicit drug economy initially, which made product even more unstable than it had been, social isolation, disruptions in clinical services. In many ways, I think, though, that the particular vulnerabilities of people who use drugs or people with opioid use disorder to COVID reflect the strange history and stigma around substance use and use disorder in the United States. For example, how do we treat addiction? We treat it when we treat it differently than we treat other medical conditions. We have residential treatment we have um, opioid treatment programs, which require you know, daily attendance or around the clock sort of you know, residential programming. And COVID is coronavirus respiratorily transmitted being in close proximity to others increases the likelihood of acquisition and of disease. And how we provide care sort of augments that. And it also reflects how we don't treat addiction how we criminalize substance use, how we put people who are criminalized into jails and prisons, places of close proximity for the spread of a respiratory uh, virus, or people lose their jobs and become unstably housed and or homeless and are placed in shelters. Again, places of higher transmission amongst people with greater vulnerability. So the vulnerabilities are as much structural as they are physiological. Though there are some interesting physiological ones, right? Opioids decrease respiration. It's the one side effect of opioids that people do not really develop tolerance to. And COVID is a respiratory infection. So you have people who are biologically really, you know, from their use at slightly higher risk of acquiring and then getting sick and a harder time healing from the infection. From the biology to the structure, um, this has been, like I said, a disaster with some silver linings that I hope we talk about. Well, the term perfect storm is overused, but for the victims of opioid use disorder, this does sound like a perfect storm. So I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing about some silver linings uh, and we'll get to those. Lord knows we could use some. Brandon Mishka highlighted that COVID-19 created financial and other hardship, whether it's housing or family issues or employment for so many Americans. Can you talk specifically about how COVID-related lockdowns have impacted persons in recovery? Absolutely, um, Ron. First of all, thanks for having me on. Um, I always appreciate to talk about access to justice and, and legal implications and how that intertwines with substance use disorder. And um, I think Mishka really used a, a very accurate word. It was devastating for this community. It, it really has been, you know, not to jump right into numbers, but we, we've clearly obviously seen a, a huge increase in overdose deaths. Um, even the, you know, Indiana was, was we felt doing really well. Um, before the, the pandemic hit, we were decreasing in overdoses at about three times the rate of the rest of the nation. And um, it's it's just been, completely the opposite direction, up 30%, and not, it hasn't even plateaued yet. You know, this last year, the first year of the pandemic was up 30%, and I think in my head mentally, I thought that it would kind of level off after that number, and that's not the case. We're seeing numbers up another 20% even this year, and so just huge increases, and a lot of it's, 
once you really start kind of digging into some of the stuff that's been mentioned about the isolation, the solution for COVID and the solution for substance use disorder are almost diametrically opposed. COVID is stay away from people, get your groceries delivered, work from home if possible, limit your connectivity. And, you know, there's that famous saying about, you know, recovery and, you know, the, the opposite of addiction isn't recovery. The opposite of addiction is connection. And we are telling people to not be connected. And not only are we telling them that, but, you know, in Indianapolis, for instance, one of the things I like to highlight is there was 500 12-step meetings in the greater Indianapolis area per week, 500 meetings per week. And they all shut down overnight almost with COVID. And eventually people uh, made adjustments, things went online, et cetera. I'm guessing that's one of those silver linings, you know, COVID has forced us telehealth-wise to get up to where we should be. The problem with that is that it's really highlighting the disparities in between people that have access to high-speed internet, to computers, to phones, et cetera. You know, a lot of people that are really struggling rely on things like free Wi-Fi from McDonald's or the coffee shop in order to do their online activity. And when they don't have those places anymore, they don't just lose the place they are hanging out at, they lose their connectivity to the rest of the world not just for recovery related things, but for behavioral health related things, for family, for connection, et cetera. And it really is having its toll. I really thought that, and I'm wondering if Mishka can chime in on this. A lot of the federal regulations that were waived during COVID, I thought was going to lead to a huge increase in prescribing um, some of the drugs that we use to treat opioid use disorder, like buprenorphine. And some of the first visits were waived. But in my experience is providers didn't take advantage of that. Like I've actually saw clinics still shut down instead of make the pivot to telehealth wise. And so we talk about the inability to access care for folks that don't have the means. Again, that, that gap widening. Some people were able to pivot telehealth wise, able to adjust to the new world and others really, really were not able to. So it hit in a variety of ways. I'm guessing we'll probably touch on evictions later. I think that we've, we've had a a cushion with what the CDC said and putting the try to put the moratorium in place that most people have followed. But that is something else that I just see on the horizon that is going to have just a massive, massive impact. Mishka, did you want to respond to Brandon's point about treatment? Yeah, briefly. And, and just another statistic is that like in San Francisco, more people have died of overdose than have died of COVID. Um, and uh, that's not the case in other places, but there's almost, it's, there's been a, it, the largest increase in drug deaths over the last year, coming on top of, you know, the largest increases, like, you know, almost annually up until then. So this is really, really devastating to people, families, and to communities. So yeah, there were these things that happened there, you know, you didn't have to have an in-person uh, visit in order to initiate medication for opioid use disorder with buprenorphine. You still did need to have the in-person visit for methadone initiation. So already an inequity in which medication and different people get different medications. White people, are, when they get medication, are more likely to get buprenorphine. When Black people get medications, more likely to be methadone. So um, there's like the baked in stuff like repeat um, themselves in, in, in crisis situations. But I agree with you that the, um, 
that there has not been this sort of massive uptake. You know, some clinics have done a great job reaching out for people who have to travel a long distance and, you know, transportation is a barrier. Teleservices can lessen that barrier. Um, but there hasn't been like a market increase in prescribers suddenly coming on board and providing medications, you know, for opioid use disorder. An example of a silver lining-ish, you know, or using telehealth as a technology to fill these gaps. In D.C., all the emergency departments have started giving buprenorphine for people who are admitted following an overdose, but very few of the physicians are wavered to prescribe buprenorphine. So one of the local FQHCs has put a computer into the emergency department so that people who are supposed to get a script upon leaving the emergency department can get one you know, remotely, and then that person is enrolled in ongoing care via teleservices. I would have loved to have seen, which we should have done a long time ago, is put Wi-Fi stations, computer booths for medical services in post offices or in other similar federal places that are widely disseminated geographically across the United States. Libraries, other libraries. Open I, I agree that are open to public that people can go and access without the other anchor site on the end of the telehealth where it doesn't have to be a medical provider on the back end of it that creates more barriers. It's a great point. It's interesting. And we're going to, I'm going to pursue this with Brendan in a moment, but the digital divide, I always thought of it as a rural problem that people were so far removed from uh, cell service that they couldn't get the internet. And of course, it turns out it's as much an economic divide as it's a geographic divide. The story about people going to McDonald's parking lots is often an urban story. So that's one point to keep in mind. The other thing that just keeps striking me, and as you were speaking, it strikes me even harder, which is here we had the opioid epidemic, which was really a front page story. And it was a healthcare, a public healthcare issue and a a legal issue that really had captured a lot of attention and the attention of lawmakers. And, and then all of a sudden we have this new public health issue, obviously an enormous one that we're still living through with our short attention span moves the opioid epidemic kind of out of public view. And we're all focused on the COVID-19 and the pandemic. And lo and behold, as we're, you know, you're talking about uh, COVID has made uh, the challenges of the opioid use disorder much worse. It's it's up to uh, vehicles like this podcast and and others other similar vehicles to refocus our attention, at least some of our attention, on this pre-existing uh, public health emergency. So, Brendan, of course, uh, this is the LSC podcast. Uh, LSC is the uh, largest funder of civil legal aid in America. Uh, people are probably scratching their heads as to uh, wh why we're talking about uh, opioid use disorder and uh, the uh, confluence of the pandemic with the uh, pre-existing uh, opioid uh, epidemic. You're our uh, legal aid guru for the, the program. And we actually put in a plug, LSC, uh, with the help of many people, including Brandon and Mishka and uh, many legal aid folks, including Legal Aid of West Virginia, published a task force report uh, about uh, oh, 18 months ago that highlighted the tremendous work that legal aid programs can do to support 
uh, individuals and families facing opioid use disorder and to help them with the employment issues and the family issues and the housing issues that often are stressors in their lives and, and create greater risk for uh, opioid use disorder, as well as getting access to medication-assisted treatment. And if you want to read that report, go to www.lsc.gov. But let's, let's turn to your work. You're working directly with people in recovery. And if you could tell us your experience working with clients during the last 18 months or so and how your work changed from pre-COVID times. Sure, Ron. I think to understand how legal services have been affected, there's a sort of background understanding that's necessary. It's that my daily work is through medical legal partnership and community-based referral systems where I'm, I'm kind of embedded in these sites, working with people and identifying issues to help people in recovery. As you said, we regain control of their, their lives, right? Whether that means barriers to self-sufficiency or other huge incentive legal issues that help people with their recovery. You know, for example, custody issues is, is a massive driver for many people. But with that background, that I'm talking about with the medical legal partnership, right? The legal services don't exist if the legal client is not a medical patient. So when, when we talk about everything that Mishka and Brandon have explained so eloquently is that when recovery is harder, what does that mean? These people are relapsing or, or overdosing and maybe both, whatever it may be. When somebody's relapsing and, and if they're for any reason not going to their recovery program, then I don't have a point of contact for them there anymore. I, I do my best to, you know, when I do an intake, make sure that I get multiple phone numbers just in case somebody does drop off. But at the end of the day, the, the reason this works so well is I know I can go back to the clinic and find them there and, you know, touch base. But when somebody's recovery clock starts, uh, there's kind of like an issue by issue clock that also starts. So for example, a family law uh, custody modification really not proper to be filing a petition for modification in under six months or in many cases, even under 12 months, because the judge is not going to want to approve something if they don't think that this person has a high chance of sustaining long-term recovery. So if I go and file a petition for modification for somebody who's got three months of recovery, I'm not doing them a favor. I need to tell them what they need to do to maintain contact and then provide some other brief advice, but basically just say, I need you to come back to me at 12 months, keep doing everything you're doing with the clinic because that's how you can get your kids back, is maintaining your recovery, making sure that you tick all these other boxes, which all have been negatively affected by COVID too, such as stable employment, stable housing, and other things that I mean, any judge might wanna see for somebody in a, in a custody issue. Again, so if people who are relapsed or struggling with COVID, they're, they're not ready for legal services yet. And it's, it's really frustrating on, on my end to see somebody who was ready then undergo a mental health crisis through this pandemic and, you know, become no longer ready, unfortunately. And I have to basically tell them if, if for any reason they needed a referral, of course, I'm going to let them know what, what treatment centers they can go to. But for a lot of them, you know, they're, they, they've got a treatment center. They just, they're not, not ready yet in terms of how the recovery is progressing for a legal issue or a legal intervention. Another issue is a driver's license statement. And it's really this, a, the same analysis, but a shorter timeline. If somebody is an active substance use disorder, it's not good for me to help them reinstate their license at that moment because them getting a, a DUI next week or a, some sort of infraction next week is going to end up in potentially a multi-year delay in their driver's license again. And that, like, unfortunately, a lot of the answers for, for these problems, like I said, is just 
sustained recovery. Similarly, they're kind of different with evictions, right? I don't want to get too far down. I thought it sounds like we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but I'll say that it feels like there's this backlog that's just been mounting eternally with this, with the CDC moratorium. But in reality, a lot of these landlord-tenant issues are being resolved in different ways. For example, the, the moratorium only applied to non-payment it's no secret that landlords know how to file an eviction for somebody they just don't like by finding another issue with that person. And it doesn't have to be non-payment of rent to be the issue, right? Maybe there's uh, somebody who smokes too close to the property, right? Or somebody who has a pet they're not supposed to have. And maybe the landlord was tolerating it, then they fell behind on the rent and they kind of left that landlord's good graces. And so they're not going to tolerate it any longer. And those cases are frustrating to see, but the, the CDC board terms have been effective in the limited scope that they apply to, whereas the non-payment of rent. And even now with the, the new uh, moratorium that's been extended, it only applies to, the, to counties that basically have an ongoing outbreak. That applies to all the counties that I work with. So that's, that's good for those people that can affect. And in the meantime, we've been able to take advantage as an organization of, um, it's called the Mountaineer Rental Assistance Program. And I'm sure other states have some analog to this, but it's any, any issue with rent, we're, we're trying to do what we can to literally just physically walk them through that application because as, as with anything of that sort, it's a little bit tougher than it should be in terms of what, what to expect of, of the average client who would come through here. So if we can improve their outcomes on that, we can avoid the evictions altogether, which is a, a fantastic case that we would rather not have to do. I do think an important part of that. So I just don't, I really want to drive home for people listening that if, if people have housing instability, nothing else is of concern. Like if you don't know where you're going to lay your head that night, or you don't know where you're going to get your next meal from, uh, I'm sure uh, Dr. Turpley could talk about the, the hierarchy of needs, right? Like at some point, this falls by the wayside, the recovery piece and everything else, you know, getting to a doctor's appointment, none of it matters because I have to worry about where I'm going to lay my head tonight. And so it's just a vital, vital part. And I think that you know, we put a lot of barriers around housing and, and mandates for people to get support, et cetera. And that's why the legal aid work that's being talked about is just so important that we're able to get people support, um, especially at a time where everything's more difficult because of places being closed, the ability to communicate, online services being needed, and us taking for granted that a lot of people don't have access to that. So, um, Brenda, I, I really think those points are, are very important. And to bring it back to the OUD piece, like people can die as a result of what we're talking about. And that's just not hyperbole. It, it, it's, a, it's a real problem. Well, as Mishka pointed out in, in the Bay Area, not that this is the only metric, but it's a more lethal problem than COVID has been uh, over the last 18 months. Mishka, you work with a very specific population affected by uh, the opioid epidemic that is pregnant and parenting persons. Can you talk about how this population and other historically underserved populations are facing really unique barriers to recovery right now. Actually, uh, you know, Brendan mentioned family court and, and, and one of the unique parts of taking care of pregnant and parenting people with opioid use disorder is the close proximity to child welfare. And I'll just illustrate a point through a true story. And this is from the Bronx during the height of the uh, pandemic there in March and April of last year, where the hospitals were basically entirely COVID wards, but labor and delivery still was operational. 
People were not allowed to have partners in the birthing rooms. Anybody who was COVID positive or suspected of COVID positive, mothers were separated from their infants for two-week quarantine. This is after a decade of us pushing, trying to keep mothers and babies together as a way of addressing neonatal abstinence syndrome and other things. It was incredible to see how quickly that work eroded in a pandemic. But child welfare was still going into the hospital, making assessments and removing children and placing them into foster care. So having your doula, having your partner, breastfeeding, those were not considered essential services. But child welfare in a way was considered an essential service during the height of the pandemic. Once within the system, there were changes from the COVID. So there was no in-person visitation people whose kids were now in a foster placement were supposed to do some kind of like Zoom, Zoom talking to a couple week old. Like that's, that's ridiculous and absurd. Court hearing dates were sort of moved down the road, yet the ultimate hard deadline of termination of parental rights remained fixed, you know, at 18 to 24 months. One of the leading causes of maternal deaths in the United States is overdose. And almost all of those deaths happen in the postpartum period. And we know anecdotally and clinically, and we're accumulating now evidence to support this, but child welfare, having your kid removed or even having a notification and you know, people coming into your home is really a risk factor for returning to use, uh, OUD recurrence, overdose, and overdose death. So I anticipate that we will see yeah, there's been only an increase in uh, foster care placements during the last year, year and a half. And I anticipate there'll be, you know, a tragic parallel increase of overdose and overdose deaths. We're painting a pretty bleak picture here. I'd, I'd like to uh, get some solutions and uh, silver linings. Uh, so Brandon, why don't you start us in, uh, heading in that direction? How can state and local governments support persons with uh, opioid use disorder while COVID-19 continues? Well, I think there's a couple things. One, I do think that the expansion of and the cementing in of telehealth-related medical services is a big piece of it. I don't think that you can put the toothpaste back in the, the tube. Like, it's out there. We've already made some of these changes um, I know some of them expire when uh, executive orders expire, et cetera, but I think federally we are, in Indiana we are, this past legislative session, we've made some of those changes permanent, knowing that as eventually that they were going to expire. I think that's really an important aspect. And then the other part that's come about it, I think, is the additional resources that COVID has brought about. And, you know, no matter to me, how they get here, they're getting here. And so Indiana, for instance, the first rescue act that was done in December of 2020 is going to put about $45 million into the state, 30 for SUD, 15 for mental health concerns. The next round, the American Rescue Act that was just passed is going to bring about another $50 million um, directly for SUD and mental health. State allocated $100 million from the stimulus money to the state. And so there's these big pieces of money flowing in and trying to get them to the communities that are most affected is absolutely critical. Um, the state got a request for a city to build a new morgue with the SUD money. And um, like people are just using any way to try to, you know, build something in their community that they need. And so I guess what I'm getting at there is like making sure 
that the money gets to those in need and it's not siphoned off along the way. Really, truly meeting people where they're at now more than ever. We've known for a long time only a fraction of people that need help. I think about 10%. I may be off, so I don't want to leave a firm number there. I think it's around 10%, 15% of people that need help. Mishka is nodding, so I think I'm in the right ballpark. 11%. Um, there you go. Right. <laughs> Spot so, on. Get, get help that they need. And part of that is because our system is not set up appropriately to give care to them. It's not because they don't want help. It's because they truly do have the barriers in transportation or in resources or in insurance. You know, if you're in a state that doesn't have medical coverage that covers these things, um, if you're not in a wavered state, state should definitely be getting wavered to make sure that these services are coming out of Medicaid and not out of grant funding. That's a really big deal because this should be baked into payer sources. It shouldn't be one-time funding doing it. And that's important to remember too, is that all this money flows in and we really haven't talked much about the opioid settlement money that's really on the brink right now. I'm feeling an overwhelming urge as an advocacy organization to try to protect. We can't have tobacco happen all over again. We can't have this money go into building bridges and new morgues and, and other things that are, you know, have some small ancillary tie to this epidemic that's happening. And so getting it to the families that are in need, the people that are delivering services, et cetera, I think really is where the focus needs to be. Specifically, you know, we talk about legal aid and, and Ron, as you mentioned, that's what, what this podcast is for. When I look at recovery, I really break it into four areas. You got health, which includes all the treatment components, syringe services, medication, et cetera. You've got housing, uh, which we talk about recovery housing, affordable housing, et cetera community, and then purpose with jobs and, and education. Legal aid has a thread throughout all of those four dimensions of recovery. And so whether it's an expungement to get a better employment or school, or whether it's transportation to get to your job, or whether it's an eviction, help with an eviction to maintain your housing, or maybe it's getting signed up for, for insurance to get access to care, we really need to promote this. You know, I think that the task force's report was spot on. Um, and I think that it needs to stay at the forefront, you know, with COVID taking over the show, as far as what people are talking about, we really need to make sure that some of these legal aid needs are met as this money gets dispersed. You know, we consider it a recovery support service. I would press every other community to do the same thing. SAMHSA has, they didn't say don't do it. They said, we don't have an opinion yet. And so you need to make sure you're spending your money appropriately, but we really consider it a recovery support service. And a way to overcome barriers for the clients most in need. Well, that's what we in show business call a perfect segue to uh, Brendan, you and legal aid. Brandon highlighted opportunities for state and local governments to protect people with opioid use disorder during COVID-19 and the critical role that legal aid providers can play in recovery. Can you talk about your experience and how legal aid providers have adjusted their services to meet the needs of people with opioid use disorder during the uh, pandemic? There's a ton of things that legal aids can do different. There's the things that we have to do, first of all, which is the, the virtual hearing in front of the judge. That comes with its own host of problems. If Brandon's my client and we're in court together and he says something he's not supposed to say or he's, he's fidgeting or he's doing something that's going to hurt his case, I have the ability to maybe like subtly nudge him or, you know, make some kind of nonverbal communication. When you're on the phone together and they're not even in the same room as you, you lose that entirely. 
and, and you lose control of your client, which can be key for some issues. But in terms of what legal aid providers can do differently with what we know, for people with substance use disorder, their disorder is more deadly to them than COVID. We need to not give up on our outreach, not give up on our community-based lawyering attempts. And we need to do a risk-benefit analysis. It's important to just remember what's at stake for them and that the client has to come through us, either through reaching out to us or in my case, through the provider. We need to make sure that we're, we're still going to that, meeting them where they're at. It's what community-based lawyering is. I'm sure that every legal aid across the country limited outreach at the start of the pandemic. And I'm sure most legal aids still have some precaution, but that we need to make sure that we have the obvious workaround of having a Zoom meeting with the group therapy session or however you can reach them where they're at. But at the same time, there's just there needs to be an acknowledgement that an attorney needs to be on site for a community-based lawyer project to work. And I'm not saying we don't need to do that safely because we do. If this Delta variant continues in the direction that it's going, we need to be more thoughtful about how we're going to be doing that. We talked about this, Brandon, on the Access to Justice Forum. In West Virginia, it's an extremely rural state. And we have a ton of limitations on ability to communicate with clients digitally. A lot of clients don't even have a phone. Think of like the homeless client, somebody who their way of contacting you is that one fixed point in their life, whether it's their recovery center or it's a homeless shelter. We really need to hammer down kind of fallback contact methods with those clients. And that's really just advocacy. That's just effective advocacy for somebody in recovery or somebody who's at risk of a relapse. Um, I mentioned getting multiple phone numbers, but if the client knows that an attorney is going to be at this community area on this day of the month, and they're not going to not show up because of the pandemic, right? They know that they can rely on them being there. That's so much more likely to avoid the, the, the terrible result of closing a case because you can't reach your client. It's that simple for a lot of these, honestly. I would just uh, maybe pitch to other legal aides to consider expanding litigation funds for um, barriers to recovery. Maybe you can uh, cover the cost of a drug screen in a, in a custody issue. Maybe you can cover the cost of uh, a DMV uh, application fee. I, I'm sure most legal aids, whether an LSC or not, have some amount of litigation funds that are pretty, pretty flexible. And I think that that's as good a use as any, any use for litigation funds to just help these people get their lives back on track. Brendan, I appreciate that. And I think that, you know, sometimes there's just so much stigma baked into our ways of thinking that if, you know, if we've got somebody who uses drugs, they're like, oh, if we'll, if we cover that $25 for their drug screen, then they're going to use that money to go buy drugs. Right. And that's just like, not saying that it, it never happens, but people need access to, to funding and resources for everything, just like you and I do, right. For a meal or for you know, hey, I can save this and, and, and pay something else on the rent or the light bill or the cell phone that I need. Hey, if I save 25 bucks, I can get the prepaid cell phone I've been trying to get. And uh, more times than not, that's the case. There's some studies around that of what happens when you actually give people money and, and what they spend it on. And people are a little bit more responsible than, than we give them credit for. Uh, a lot more responsible, actually. We see that with contingency management and some of the approaches. Like, oh my gosh, we can't give them money. Like, well, actually, yes, we can. And they do, they do well with it. And so the more we can support there to reduce barriers, I think the better off we are. Mishka. I mean, I said sort of, I felt like there's two dimensions to, that I'd respond to. One is really strictly clinical within the addiction treatment box and the other is 
uh, much broader. And, and this, this sort of the pandemic response has seen, I think, you know, there's been a less reliance clinically on urine drug testing, which I think is a great benefit overall and um, sort of undoes a nitis of judgment and, uh, and exactly what you were just talking about and the, the, the assumptions we have about people's behavior. Um, and, and I'd like to, and it's been great to see some addiction docs like dial back their historic necessary emphasis on one single data point. Similarly, we saw sort of an expansion of take-homes for methadone. I'm working on an analysis to document that, you know, this did not lead to more diversion, more problems, and that these historic restrictive laws are based in judgment and prejudice and not scientifically needed. But what you have all been talking about, especially about sort of legal aid as an example, uh, Brandon, about like sort of recovery support services. So the treatment box is important, but it, it, it exists to some extent separate from health and wellness. And what we really need and where public health struggles is in the space between things. It can stand up a residential program or stand up this or implement something, but what keeps it all together? And that's really that sort of holistic vision that it thinks about health, wellness, peer services, legal aid. It's premised to a large extent on, on the principles that you, you were laying out, you know, meeting people where they're at. Sometimes the term harm reduction is charged, but really to me, that's just like grounded in human empathy. In many ways, there's a part of this pandemic that has reminded people somewhere of empathy too. Impossible to not witness the suffering and sort of randomness of suffering of others. And really like forcing people to consider what is important, what is essential, even if those decisions you know, we may or may not always um, agree with. But the idea of sitting with people, taking a sincere interest in others, in the lives of others, helping them you know, get from where they are to where they want to be. And that is beyond opioids, but opioids become an effective way to, you know, to remind people of their humanism. Coronavirus has in large measure moved the opioid epidemic out of the headlines. Unfortunately, it has in many respects made the challenges of the opioid use disorder and the opioid epidemic worse. Thank you to Mishka and Brandon and Brendan for underscoring that point, explaining why that's the case, and perhaps most importantly, pointing to ways in which the lessons learned from the last 18 months can be used to do a better job in addressing opioid use disorder, both during the pandemic and its end. Thanks to all three of you for your illuminating discussion. Everybody have a good evening. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on the podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.